This is the time we get to look into the Word of God together, and so I want to invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Luke's Gospel and turn to the 16th chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the back of the pew there for you. Find Matthew, Mark, and then Luke in the New Testament. Luke chapter 16, and I want to bring you a message this morning that I've entitled, What Shall I Do? What Shall I Do? We've been studying through Luke's gospel over these last few years now, and we find ourselves in a portion of scripture that is rich in a form of teaching that Jesus was quite known well for, and that is the form of the parable. Jesus being a master storyteller, there was no subject or doctrine that was too complex for him to be able to use a a simple story and in order to bring a a depth and a a clearer understanding to his listeners about eternal truths. We saw that profoundly demonstrated all throughout chapter 15 of Luke when we saw how he revealed the heart and the character of God to the Pharisees and the scribes by telling three different parables, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost sons. Three very simple stories with very understandable and relatable situations, but all three with an immense and astounding picture of the true saving nature of the living God. We had on display for us in Luke 15 the glory of God's mercy and grace in that chapter, and it came through these three very simple parables. But although these parables were relatable and understandable, Occasionally, they sometimes end rather dramatically, the parable of the prodigal son being one of them. When we ended chapter 15, we never heard any more from the supposedly faithful son. We never heard how he responds to his father's compassionate and tender plea to come in and join in the celebration. We never heard if he repents of his self-righteousness and his loveless heart towards his father and his brother. But it, it sort of leaves us hanging a bit. It causes a dilemma within us, wanting to know what happened to this sanctimonious older son. But we also need to take into account that Jesus told these parables primarily for the benefit of the scribes and the Pharisees. And yet, Jesus never addresses the Pharisees and the scribes again by giving them a summation of what he had just taught, and there's really no resolution presented to us. But although there's no resolution given, it's clear from the parable that the father father in the story of that parable represented God, and the elder brother represented the Pharisees. And so that abruptness is meant to drive home the point that the, the ending is ultimately totally up to them. It's meant to cause the scribes and the Pharisees to ask, if that is me in that parable, if Jesus is describing me, what shall I do? What shall I do? But as we're going to see in our text this morning, Jesus is going to turn his focus from the Pharisees to his disciples, and he's going to utilize yet another parable. He's going to shift gears, if you will, and go from evangelism to discipleship. And so we, as disciples of Jesus Christ, as students of our Master, we need to perk up our attention to what the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching here. 
And we need to do the same when we read this parable and ask that question, what shall I do? What shall I do? So, I want us to read our text together this morning. Again, we're in Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. I want to invite you to stand with me, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. We'll read down to verse 9 of Luke chapter 16. God's inspired and inerrant Word says this, Now he was also saying to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and he said, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the treasure that we have in your written word. We thank you for the glorious truths that are found in it, and we come to you as beggars this morning and would ask you of two things, that by the power of your Holy Spirit that we might have ears to hear, that you would say to us through your holy word, and that by the strength of your Spirit, we would receive grace to obey and to apply that which we hear. Help us this morning, Lord, as we gaze into your eternal truth that is just as relevant today as in the day in which you spoke them. Change our hearts and conform us into the image of your Son. We pray all these things in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. It was uh, the evening of March the 8th, 1713, when the famed nonconformist pastor and Bible commentator Matthew Henry was walking home from his church in London, England, after having just preached on Psalm 89, verse 16, which says, In your name they rejoice all the day, and by your righteousness they are exalted. But as he made his way home that evening, being just about a half mile from his home, four robbers came upon him and surrounded him and demanded that he would give over his wallet. Obviously outnumbered, he willingly applied and gave them his wallet, which ended up to have about 10 or 11 shillings in it, to which the best that I could come up with comes to be about 87 cents. 
But soon after that incident, he went home and he wrote in his diary his four thoughts on the whole ordeal. And he journaled the, the following entries after that robbery. He said, number one, what reason have I to be thankful to God who have traveled so much and yet never be robbed before? Number two, what great deal of evil the love of money is, the root of that four men would venture their lives and their souls for about half a crown apiece. Number three, he said, see the power of Satan in the sons of disobedience. And number four, he said, see the vanity of worldly wealth. How soon we may be stripped of it. How loose, therefore, we should sit to it. You see, Matthew Henry had a right perspective in regards to his money and the, that he lost. He realized that the love of money was enough to cause one's soul eternal damnation for the love of it, as witnessed by these four men, and that to put one's hopes and one's securities in what was in your wallet was nothing more than worldly vanity and vainglory. Because there are actually only two ways in which you can view your wealth and your money. You can either have an eternal perspective, or you can have a temporal one. You can either have it as evidence of God's grace, or you can have it be seen as achieved solely by your strengths and your efforts. And you can view it as a means to an end, or you can view it as an end to itself. Money can generate a great number of sins in your heart. Covetousness, greed, discontent, pride, selfishness, anxiety, idolatry, just to name a few. Or money can generate generosity, blessing, charity, and the joy that comes in helping others. In a word, you can either honor God and exalt Jesus Christ with your money, or by having the right perspective of it, or you can dishonor the Lord and bring him to open shame at great risk to your soul. Money is so important to God that of nearly the 40 parables that the Lord taught in the Synoptic Gospels, nearly one-third of them deal in some way about money. And that's true of the parable that we have before us this day. Jesus wants his disciples and us to reorient our view of money. Because the world we live in is preoccupied and it is dominated by sinful views of money. Now, there have been very many interpretations of this parable that range from the absurd uh, to the some respectable attempts to understand it. And many have come from some names that you might be familiar with. Uh, Jerome ascribes the unjust steward to the Apostle Paul, who was thrust out of Judaism and then made himself friends by preaching the gospel. Anselm thinks that the rich man in this parable is God, and the unrighteous steward are all true penitents, and that the lowering of bills represents your first actions of repentance and charity. Irenaeus Augustine, Athanasius, Calvin, and Luther all argue that this parable is nothing more than an earnest exhortation to liberal almsgiving. Even the more modern and liberal German philosopher and, quote, theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher, and if you want to learn how to pronounce that, I'll help you out later, 
said that this rich man represents the Romans, and the manager represents the publicans, and the debtors are the Jewish nation, and that the Lord's point here was to prove the publicans' kindness to their countrymen. And I suppose if you take that type of interpretation and you apply it to the Bible, then you can literally actually make the Bible say whatever you want. But as we start to understand this parable, we must remind ourselves that the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. Because the Bible was never given to us as a a series of riddles to solve or mysteries to unlock. We're not to use some secret decoder or find some hidden meaning or even look for some numerical pattern that might point to something greater. And any time, just so we're clear, that you read of a trumpet blast in Scripture, it does not mean that you should look to the White House for answers. And yes, folks, I just heard this week that there are people out there saying that. But Jesus did not say or did not tell us that the truth will set us free in John chapter 8 and then leave us with that truth as being elusive or hazy or even subjective to whoever is reading it at the time. But by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit and careful use of our minds by applying a consistent hermeneutic or a consistent interpretation of the Bible, we find that Jesus would have us to know is actually plainly taught to us. Now, I have to admit to you, and hopefully I'm not the only one in this room this morning that experienced this, but when I read through this parable, it seemed a little off to me. I had a hard time connecting some dots and understanding what Jesus was saying because the individuals in this parable don't seem to be acting in a godly fashion. And yet, Jesus seems to be praising them or using them uh, to teach. And the question is, how can Jesus be teaching a positive uh, spiritual principle on an, an ethical action of an unrighteous steward? Most likely, this is why there are so many varying views of this text. But after another pass of this text, we find that it's not that Jesus is praising them or saying that they are honorable or virtuous, but that he's using their zeal, their worldly wisdom, as a means of comparison to the zeal and the godly wisdom that true disciples of Jesus Christ should have themselves. He's basically using a principle and a teaching method that is so often found in the Bible, and that is the form of teaching from the lesser to the greater by way of comparison. We've seen this done before in Luke chapter 11, verse 13, when Jesus taught about the graciousness and the mercy of God and the giving of the Holy Spirit when he said, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more... Will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Or even Luke chapter 12, verse 24, when he said in regards to worry and anxiety, he said, consider the ravens, the, the ugliest and least of all birds. Even you could maybe say starlings in, my, in front of my bird feeders right now. They neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom and no barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable you are than the birds. 
Or one of the more beautiful texts in all of sacred scripture, when the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, he says this, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God was going to do the seemingly impossible task of sending his own beloved son to die on the cross for you and me, if that great and insurmountable obstacle was going to be overcome by God himself, how in the world will he not freely give us forgiveness and mercy and eternal life? And so that's what we have here in our parable this morning, is that same teaching method of going from the lesser to the greater. So let's Look at our text together and see how Jesus unfolded this parable of the unjust steward. Notice in your text in verse 1 there, it says this. Now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. So first of all, we see that Jesus is now turning his focus to his disciples. They would have been a larger group than just the twelve, but it would have been a wider circle of followers. And yet the Pharisees are still within earshot of Jesus' teaching because we're going to find them later on in verse 14. It says that they are listening to him and scoffing at the things that he was saying. But his teaching is primarily for focusing on his audience of his disciples. And so we're introduced to a rich man, one of the characters of this story. And he's not some independent businessman that is involved in all the minutiae of the details in his business. He's certainly not a small business guy doing all the tasks required to keep that business going. But he has hired a manager to oversee the day-to-day operations. Now, we know that this is a very sizable business. It's a very large business because of the amount of debt that is owed to him later on in verses 6 and 7 that we'll see in a bit. And he's probably so wealthy that had he not gotten a report from an informant, he may have never known that he was actually losing money. He had no idea. It's easier to hide deception when there is a lot of money involved in a business. But somehow he gets word from someone else that his manager may not be doing what he's supposed to be doing with the rich man's resources. It says that he gets word that his manager was squandering his possessions. He's wasting them. Incidentally, this is the exact same word that was used in Luke 15.3 to describe the younger son wasting his share of the estate in the previous chapter. It's as if he's throwing money around, left and right, without any care, without any concern as to who it actually belongs to. It is raining money around this manager. Perhaps he was starting to ride a a new camel each and every day and somebody took notice. You know, perhaps he was uh, starting to buy drinks for everyone and buy people dinner. Something is not right and it catches the attention of someone else who reports it to the rich man. Now this is a very serious accusation because a manager acts on behalf of someone else and on the basis of trust and confidence. There should be some integrity there that the manager possesses in regards to managing his employer's resources. 
And so the rich man confronts his manager in verse 2 there. He says, and he called to him and he said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. In other words, what he is saying is, get your books together and you're fired. The jig is up. You've been busted. Get all the paperwork together. Get your ledger sheet updated. And when you do, bring it back to me because today is your last day. Now, this was obviously a bad decision on the rich man's part because if the manager was already proven himself less to be, to be uh, less than integritable before in his business, what makes him think that the manager is suddenly, all of a sudden, going to have integrity now? Why would you give him extra time to do more damage to your business? We actually have this principle built into our church's constitution when we found that a treasurer, if they were doing something wrong, uh, and we got wind of it and some sort of uh, impropriety was going on, the elders don't need to wait three weeks to have a congregational meeting uh, to get approval. We can act immediately and we can act swiftly in order to protect the church if necessary. But here the rich man gives the manager ample time to carry out his dubious scheme. And we find that in verses 3 through 4 where it says, The manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And so this is a bit of shock to him for his livelihood. If any of you have ever been released from a job or terminated or fired, you know it's not a good feeling. You know it's, it's, it's really caused you to be downcast because now all of a sudden you're faced with the reality that you don't know what you're going to do for a living. How are you going to eat? How are you going to take care of your family? How are you going to provide shelter for yourself? About eight years ago, I, I potentially felt this burden when I had herniated a disc in my neck and I was on the precipice of losing my full-time employment and all my benefits with eight hungry children and crops in the field and all that goes along with it. And I didn't know if I was going to have a full-time job anymore. And so there was a, a bit of anxiety thinking about what shall I do next? But it, it raises no sense of small anxiety when you're let go from your job. And so evidently, this manager, he's either too weak or he's too proud to do any kind of manual labor. He's a white-collar worker. And even going around and begging is out of the question for him. So then he has an epiphany. He has a eureka moment. He comes up with the bright idea that he will make others indebted to him. And he's going to do so by utilizing his boss's money. In other words, he's going to buy favors for the future. He's going to scratch somebody's back now so that later on when he's out of, job, out of a job, they will scratch his. And he's not so much as going to depend on the debtor's riches that they have as much as he's going to depend on the relationship. Many of you who are out in the workplace have no doubt seen this sort of thing played out, where people scratch the boss's back to get an advancement in the future. So even before the debtors of this rich man can get wind that he's being fired, he starts to cut some deals. And he calls them in one by one. We see that in verses 5 through 7. It says, And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? 
And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write down 80. So the deception begins. Because notice that when he speaks to these debtors one by one, he still utilizes this term, my master. My master. Giving the the debtors the impression that everything is still okay with his employment. Now, strictly speaking, the manager had a legal right to do what he is doing, but morally and ethically, his actions are reprehensible. Because what this scheme is tantamount to was nothing more than embezzlement. It was a misappropriation of the master's money and resources. And one by one, he's starting to make some deals with the debtors. The first one gets a major bargain by a 50% cut in his debt. 100 measures of oil is equivalent to 875 gallons of most likely olive oil. And that deal that he just got knocked off a year and a half of his wages for an average man at that time. The second one gets a 20% cut in his debt of wheat and would have been the equivalent to even a greater amount equal to about 8 to 10 years of labor as a farmer. So this is a massive, massive fortune allowing this manager to buy up favors with all of these debtors for life. And these two individuals are just a fraction of those who owed money to the rich man because verse 5 tells us that he summoned each one of his master's debtors. These are just representatives of the size of debt that he forgave. The debtors had no idea of the scheme and the plan that's going on. They probably assumed he's acting in good faith for the rich man, but they quickly and readily agree to such a deal. Would you wait to get a deal of 50% of your debt cut? Neither would I. So they quickly signed the paperwork. But here's where the parable takes a bit of a twist and a turn that causes a little confusion. In verse 8, notice with me it says in your text, And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Now, up to this point, the rich man seems to be a victim. And it's kind of easy to relate to him, maybe sympathize with him a bit. But the rich man actually praises the manager for acting shrewdly. Now, it's important to note, the rich man is not praising his dishonesty. He's not praising his lack of honor here. He's praising the fact that he was keeping an eye out for his future. He was praising his shrewdness, or another word might uh, be said that he was acting keenly or circumspect of his future. He's praising the manager's ingenuity and cleverness in doing what he did. It's like the entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs and business owners when they relate to one another. It, It takes one to really know one and to appreciate one. And when one entrepreneur comes in and, and seems to do, be doing well for himself, another entrepreneur hear, hears of it, and there's, mo, there's sort of this uh, seeming appreciativeness or understanding of how hard and how that all works out. There's a mutual admiration. And that's what this rich man is doing to the manager. He's not praising his dishonesty, but he's praising his ingenuity. 
But this is where Jesus' point comes in, in verse 8. He says this, For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. In other words, what Jesus is saying here, by way of comparison from the lesser to the greater, is that sinners tend to be more forward-thinking and prudent about their temporal futures than the saints do in working and laboring for their future in eternity. Those who are sons of this age or know only of this life and they have nothing to look forward about a future kingdom of God and only have to look for what remains of their earthly life, they are more zealous, more mindful, and more wise about redeeming the time for their temporal future than the sons of lights or believers or true disciples of Jesus Christ are about redeeming their time and being zealous for the time to come in eternity with Jesus Christ. In other words, if this is what a worldly man does, how should a godly man live? If this is how a worldly woman would live, how should a worldly woman or a godly woman live, rather. If this is how the sons of this age live, how then should we, as sons of light, live? Some of you may be coming near to the end of your working years, where the job that you have may not be what you're doing in the next couple of years. The job that you've worked at to raise and support your family, the job that you may have been trained for as a young man or a young woman, and you are standing on the cusp and the brink of retirement. But the crucial question that I have for you is this. What, for what purpose is your retirement? What do you envision your retirement to look like? To live the rest of the world and spend all of your money on ease and pleasure, wasting your God-given time? Or do you look at your retirement as a way of freedom to serve God in a greater and greater capacity? When you view your life of retirement, do you look at it as a means to be more like the sons of this age who only care about their temporal future? Or are you looking forward to the day when you can give more freely, serve more freely, read God's word more regularly, drink in his truths more deeply, disciple people more freely, and evangelize more freely? What do you envision retirement looking like for you? Do you see it as a means to be unencumbered from your day-to-day going to your job and working and see it as a chance to serve the Lord in a greater and greater capacity for His glory? Are you looking at your retirement so you can live a Disneyland life, travel around in a motorhome, and stick around like all the other worldly people and just waste it away? Or are you looking to the future and your eternity and your kingdom with God? What are you envisioning your retirement to look like? We, of all people, should be more shrewd in planning for our eternity with God. Colossians 3.2 tells us, Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on this earth. Philippians 3.2, it tells us that our citizenship is not on this earth, but our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if retirement is not the end of your life as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you planning and working and striving harder for your life to come? But Jesus gives us an exhortation about how we should live. He says in verse 9, he says this, And I say to you, 
Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. If you have the New King James Version, I think they fail tremendously when they say, so that when you fail, they will receive you into eternal dwellings. The text says, so that when it fails. In other words, he says, instead of just planning for your future and your earthly life, use your money to make friends who will welcome you into your eternal home. Use your resources, use your wealth, use your money, and put it to good use, put it to eternal use for gospel enterprises. Because how you use your money and the way that you use it and invest it is actually an indication of your heart. Your money actually follows where your heart already is. John Calvin once wrote, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost all authority. But even more so, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 6, 19 and 21 says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I want to be clear. The Bible is clear that Christian giving is voluntary and should be done as an overflow of what's inside your heart. 2 Corinthians 9-7 says this, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Another church that I was involved in required that if you're going to be in leadership of the church, you must give a full 10% of your gross income to the church. Let me just be clear. That is a flawed understanding of what God asks a person, and I would go on to say that it's probably a little bit more closer to spiritual malpractice on the point of the leaders. God is never so much as concerned with the amount you give as He is with your heart that's behind the giving. It's almost akin to your worship. You can sing all the songs that we just sang today beautifully and in harmony. You can faithfully attend all the worship services that we ever offer here. You could show up early and prepare for the worship service and do all you can for the church. And you could do all of those things, and yet God is concerned about your heart behind them. Nowhere in the New Testament are you commanded to give 10% of your income. That is spiritual malpractice. God wants your heart in your giving. And so the question that we leave off with is this. It's the one that we began with. If what Jesus is telling us here is true, what shall we do? What shall we do to invest in eternal things? What shall we do in order to provide myself with more treasure in heaven than I've currently been doing? What shall I do to maximize God and his kingdom? How can I make Jesus Christ look more glorious to a lost and dying world by the way that I spend my money? In other words, as we look at the year 2017 and we say goodbye and we look forward to 2018, What can you do 
to display the glory and the beauty and the value of Jesus Christ in your life by how you spend your money? How can you make Jesus Christ look glorious to a lost and dying world? Where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. Is your heart in God's kingdom? Is that truly where your treasure is? Do you value God more than you value that new phone, that new car, those things that you've been thinking about and meditating about? Where is your heart in regards to your money? Are you making friends by investing in gospel enterprises? Are you making sure that the kingdom of God is being expanded by investing in missionaries and Bible translators? What are you doing to maximize God and His kingdom with your money? Let's pray. Father, I readily confess to you that This is an easier sermon to preach than it is to sometimes live out. And we all struggle and have difficulty with this very thing that you've asked us. Father, I just pray that that might not be so of us. That you would transform our hearts to conform it to Christ. That we would look forward to the coming year and look for ways where we can give for the sake of the gospel's advancement. Help us to evaluate where we are and where we should go in terms of our giving and our sacrifice. And Lord, overall, let it come from the innermost part of our being, our hearts. Help us to make Christ look beautiful and glorious and treasured in our lives by the way that we give liberally, generously, and cheerfully. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.